welcome to The Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr. Today's topic is post-colonialism, which is perhaps the most important modality of the past 50 years in the humanities, in the study of history, the arts, literature and culture. The most significant event of modern history was the rolling back of the great modern empires, the Portuguese and Spanish, Dutch and French, Russian, German, Ottoman and British, which had coloured the map of the world in the 19th century. No modern man in his heart of hearts believes that it is right to invade a foreign country and hold the population down by force, said George Orwell, who had served in the Indian Imperial Police in Burma as a young man. A combination of the exhaustion of the great powers and resistance by their subject peoples left in the wake of these empires a world that was post-colonial. But the post-colonial is not just a chronological term. It can be defined in Walter Benjamin's phrase as the tradition of the oppressed. It refers to the way the world was understood and experienced in the light of foreign conquest, settlement and control and the way that history continues to shape the contemporary world. To discuss the post-colonial, I'm joined today by Peng Chair, a professor at the University of California at Berkeley and an authority on the post-colonial and the cosmopolitan, and by Professor Stephen Chu, head of the Hong Kong Studies Programme at Hong Kong University. Thank you both for coming in. Um, I'm going to start with you, Peng, um, and ask you to help us to disentangle these terms empire and colonialism. I think that's that, uh, that's a very interesting uh, topic. Uh, the, uh, the the two terms are often used uh, synonymously, but in fact um, they they have a slightly different meaning. Um, imperialism would just refer to um, any kind of imperial uh, domination uh, of one uh, nation by another. Um, the extension of power uh, across uh, territorial boundaries. So military, political, military, political yeah. uh, economic, but also uh, financial. Okay. Um, so, for instance, uh, Lenin uh, defined um, imperialism as the highest stage of capitalism, um, by which he meant monopoly finance capitalism. Okay. Um, uh, colonization, on the other hand, actually uh, is uh, something that's more specific. It's about actual settlement. Um, so, for instance, you can exert imperial uh, control over another place, another territory, without actually colonizing it, without settling um, in it. So if you think, say, about uh, 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 the Americas as settler colonies or Australia and so on, um, and uh, different parts of Asia like South Asia, so uh, Indi British India and so on, so those were colonies. Um, it's a specific mode for the exercise of imperial power. So colonialism involves the movement of some population from the dominant power into somebody else's territory yes, and to settle the, and live there. Yes, and the size of that uh, a transfer of uh, a personnel um, is actually important, whether or not uh, uh, bureaucracies were set up to mm -hmm. administer, huge bureaucracies were set up to administer uh, the, the, the places, uh, whether or not uh, education systems were set up, uh, the kinds of infrastructure that was built in those places that were colonised and so on. Okay, so we've got imperialism that has to do with conquest, basically, yes. and colonialism that has to do with settlement, bureaucracy, government. Yes. 
and a mixture of populations. Yes. Okay, very good. Thank you. That's helpful. Now, from there, <laughs> what about what is meant by the post-colonial? We don't say post-imperial. We say post-colonial. Well, we don't say post. We don't say post-imperial because um, it's unclear whether the whether empire imperialism has come to an end. I mean, uh, technically, I mean, we tend to think of imperialism in terms of, uh, say, British imperialism. Of course, the first empire was the Roman Empire. There are two ways to think about it. Um, I generally prefer a, a, a narrower definition. That is to say, countries that have undergone countries that were formerly colonized that have undergone a formal political decolonization. So those kinds of countries would technically be referred to as post-colonial countries. Um, and, of course, then the question is, uh, what has happened um, in post-coloniality, whether the promises of decolonization, uh, the ideals of decolonization uh, were fulfilled, uh, uh, or whether things have continued its business as usual after um, a change of personnel. The colonizing powers left, but they've set in place, or what has been set in place is a, 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 an indigenous elite that basically just takes up uh, many of the same positions. So that would be the uh, uh, narrower definition of the post-colonial. There is also um, a, a style of thought, I should say, called post-colonialism. And that would be a broader definition um, of the post-colonial as a kind of attitude um, uh, that is uh, can be considered subversive, that involves uh, some kind of resistance to the culture of uh, uh, the colonizer and so on. So you would think of uh, 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 works by uh, people like Homi Baba and uh, partly Edward Said, but also Gayatri Spivak. Um, and this would be uh, trying to resist the, uh, the epistemological violence um, of the culture of colonization and the culture of imperialism. Stephen, Peng has talked about the way colonized places become post-colonial through decolonization. So I want to ask you, um, at what stage does a place or a, or a people become post-colonial? Can you be post-colonial before you've been decolonized? Uh, in a way, I, I'm interested in Hong Kong culture, but in a way, I think Hong Kong is... Uh became post-colonial before its reversion to China. I would like to borrow um, the term used by a Hong Kong critic, Ray Chow, that Hong Kong is a kind of a post-colonial anomaly. Anomaly, uh, right. Post-colonial theories are very popular in Hong Kong uh, in the early 90s, uh, before its reversion to China, because uh, Hong Kong uh, uh, people uh, started um, thinking about their own local identity, how to uh, so-called reclaiming an their own identity, well, with, without the uh, influence of uh, the British government as well as uh, China after mm -hmm. 1997, okay. and so uh, so post-colonial uh, discussion uh, are very popular in the uh, early to mid 90s. Mm -hmm. So uh, at that time, Hong Kong is still a, a British colony. Still a colony, right? So so Hong Kong uh, does not have the privilege of inde inde independence uh, to which. It can look forward to. So, is unlike other colonies, Hong Kong is facing, in, in Ray Chow's term, another kind. Uh, is facing another colonizer after 1997. So, Ray Chow would say is a kind of between colonizers. Uh, I I do agree with her uh, on this point. Okay. So the the pattern, the general pattern, would be a country is colonized, settled, governed, 
there is perhaps resistance against that, then the colonizing power withdraws. You become formally post-colonial, right? Hong Kong is a strange case, for, for actually for more than one reason, isn't mm -hmm. it? But we'll come back to Hong Kong in a minute. What about China? Because China was not colonized. Yes, China was not colonized, but as uh Pen mentioned just now, I, I would say uh, China is heavily influenced by imperialism. And so even I think mainland Chinese critics would also agree with me that uh, post-colonial discourse or post-colonial theories can be uh, applied to analyze Chinese culture. So uh, post-colonial post theories are very popular in early 90s in the mainland. Mm -hmm. Many mainland Chinese critics borrowed theories like uh, RSIE, Orientalism to uh, critique uh, the, some of the films by the uh, fifth generation directors like Zhang Yimou or okay. Chen Kaige, yeah. and I think one of the very uh, interesting point to note is that you know the uh, the Beijing government also encouraged this kind of uh, a post-colonial critique because this kind of uh, post-colonial critique um, uh, tries to deconstruct a Western imperialism which is uh, compatible with uh, official ideology in the mainland. So China might be considered post-colonial in the sense of a pushing back against a Western cultural and economic dominance, even though China was not itself colonized. Mm -hmm, exactly. Would that, that be a way to put it? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I think Pang. probably, um, I, uh, probably a, 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 a more uh, a, a stricter uh, a definition by, by in stricter terms, uh, China is better described as, uh, or at least the rhetoric of China is better described as being anti-imperial rather than post-colonial. Mm -hmm. um, China is a very interesting case because historically, of course, China was an empire. Mm -hmm. um, it commanded uh, tribute uh, from many different uh, countries in uh, the East Asia, Southeast Asian uh, region. But of course, what happened was then it became uh, subjected to Western imperialism. So although it wasn't formally colonized, uh, there was extraterritoriality mm. uh, following the, the, uh, the treaties that were signed to conclude the Opium Wars. Um, so there were international settlements. I mean, primarily, I think, public consciousness knows of the international settlements in Shanghai. Um, but there was, but Hong Kong, uh, as you, the, this is the history of Hong Kong, right, uh, that it was ceded uh, to the British. Um, and then there was the leases um, with the new territories and so on. Um, so in that sense, then, so Hong Kong is a colony, but technically in mainland China, there was imperialism. So, uh, so that, of course, then with the um, Republican uh, period um, in China, but also with the uh, communist movement, if you look at the, the, commun the PRC constitution, there's a lot of anti-imperial rhetoric right. um, and about how, you know, different countries that were colonized and so on must all uh, band together and uh, uh, resist Western imperialism. So I think that's actually part of this uh, larger anti-imperialist uh, uh, movement that was also then uh, part of the rhetoric of the Bandung or the non-aligned movement. Okay. <clears throat> all right. Let's step back for a moment from the specific instance of, of China and Hong Kong and consider the post-colonial as what became really a, a global movement. Um, <clears throat> I want to ask next about some where it comes from, some of the intellectual genealogy, the intellectual traditions of the post-colonial. Is this uh, an idea 
that has its origins in the West or are its roots in the way that indigenous people have, have thought and conducted themselves? Post-colonialism really arose out of uh, literary studies and primarily uh, from the American Academy. Um, subsequently, of course, then uh, 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 people like Homi Baba, um, Edward Said, and Gayatri Spivak, um, and primarily out of literary studies. Edward was a, a, a literary critic, a professor from Columbia, who wrote a very famous book called Orientalism, which was about the study of representations of the Orient, 1978. Edward Said, Orientalism. Yes. Um, and the book was about how these discourses um, actually... Uh, uh, dovetailed in with the imperial, uh, with European imperialism, and uh, uh, created a desire uh, on the part of the imperial power to then uh, colonize um, other places. He's talking mostly about 18th and 19th century yes. European uh, thinkers yes. and actors, geographers, yes. uh, colonists, yeah, economists, uh, Karl Marx, for example. Right. Uh, so the the way that he, the way that a a way of thinking about other yes. places a style of thought places, yeah creates an understanding of those places as require as, as requiring domination as being okay. uh, subordinate as being feminized and so on okay um, in order to justify uh, the 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 imperialist project so a, a climate of thought which supports imperial Actions, yes. Okay, um, dispersed all all over the place, not just in political theory, but in in all kinds of discourses. advertising, yes. literature, yeah. and so on. Yeah. As I mentioned just now, uh, although Elsa uh, is focusing on the Middle East, but uh, many of, uh, Far East the critics always say that it is equally uh, applicable to the context of uh, Far okay. East, including China. Right. And so uh, it is very. Uh, it, I would say Elsa uh, is generated. A craze of Orientalism in the Far East, and particularly in the situation of uh, China and Hong Kong. Mm. And say, for instance, China, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, a famous critic, Robert Young, traces the international roots of uh, post-colonialism in his book, Post-Colonialism, a Historical mm. Introduction. He mapped a genealogy of anti-oppression uh, in that book, uh, including like uh, Karl Marx, like even Gandhi and and Mao Mao Zedong, Mao mm. and so I think in that sense, these kind of postcolonial critiques can be tra- uh, the intellectual roots of this kind of postcolonial critiques can also be traced in um, in the Chinese context to Mao. But we also talk about postcolonial art, don't we? We talk about postcolonial a postcolonial novel or film. If I'm allowed to use an example from Hong Kong literature, I would say, say for instance, a, a short novel by John Chen is a kind of post-colonial. Okay. Uh, it's called uh, Can Do Restaurant, Gam Dou Cha Chan Tang in Cantonese. He okay. uses a lot of Cantonese slangs, uh, a lot of code switching, uh, English or even uh, uh, the typical tea restaurant jargons, mm-hmm. like uh, cold lemon tea. He used a dong leng cha, right? Okay. And this kind of uh, co- uh, a, a kind of interlanguage, a kind of uh, code switching, is a strategy to you know uh, of a uh, post-colonial literature. You to uh, to question uh, the uh, the authority of the colonial uh, or the dominant uh, narrative. So it's a way of asserting a more, as it were, in, in indigenous and local way of speaking and, and seeing and experiencing 
as against a, a more orthodox um, mainstream in, in international kind of experience, mm-hmm. would that be right? I think the one that would come to mind uh, for most people is Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children. Midnight's Children is a novel that is about th- these magical children who were born uh, uh, at the stroke of midnight uh, and uh, of, the, of, uh, of Indian independence and therefore of the partition between Pakistan, partition of Pakistan, partition of the subcontinent into Pakistan and India. Um, and uh, the reason why it's considered a post-colonial novel is that um, it is a severe critique uh, through a magical, realist uh, uh, mode of writing um, of the failures of the promises of independence, that in fact nothing much had changed. So this is post-colonial not in the sense of being a critique, a direct critique of colonization itself but an examination of the way that a colonized mindset yes continues persists yes. in a in a post-colonial world yes and so i mean so then to relate it to what stephen was saying about the code switching so in a sense then that you know these things persist but then the question is what do people uh, do given mm. the persistence of colonial culture you can in your daily practices um, continue those kinds of uh, traditions of colonial culture or you can self-consciously or not self-consciously uh, resist. And, uh, you know, different things happen to that culture. Mm. Let's return to the, to the question of criticism and scholarship. Um, Stephen, are you a post-colonial critic? Uh, <laughs> In a sense, yes. So, but what does it mean to you to be a post- post-colonial critic? How, how, does it, how does this affect the way that you read and study and examine and understand things? Usually, I would try to explain or uh, even uh, critique legacies of uh, colonialism in the text, mm-hmm. in a, in a, even in the so-called cultural texts, uh, in, in films, in, in uh, social issues, uh, so on and so forth. And over the past decade or so, I'm uh, interested in Hong Kong identity. And Hong Kong identity, uh, I would look, if, uh, look at it from a post-colonial, so-called post-colonial uh, perspective, uh, how to... Uh, Shortly after the reversion of Hong Kong to China, uh, P, uh, expectation have been high that Hong Kong people is, will be able to hybridize a so-called local and national, hybridize a local and a national to form a new Hong Kong identity. To mi- mix together. To mix together, yes. But right. uh, unfortunately, I think over the past few years, uh, Hong Kong people started realizing that it's not possible for them to hybridize the local and the and the national. And some Hong Kong critics would even say that Hong Kong has been split into two, one supporting the local and the other supporting the national. And so I am interested in this issue, so I would consider myself a so-called post-colonial critic, mm. uh, still using some uh, post-colonial theories, like uh, what Penn has mentioned, is uh, like a Gayatri Spivak, like Homi Baba, to, uh, uh, um, to imagine a, a, a new kind of Hong Kong identity. And in the past, we we stick with the so-called in-betweenness of Hong Kong. Uh, Hong Kong is a kind of uh, in-between uh, China and the world. But my sense is that uh, China has kind of become the world over the past decade. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so Hong Kong lost that kind of in-betweenness. So I think we have to use uh, uh, those uh, post-colonial theories to reimagine uh, a new positioning for new Hong positioning Kong. positioning on, on a different map. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, Peng... Can you do, uh, I'm getting now the sense of doing the post-colonial as a way of 
a way of reading, a way of looking at things and finding things. Can you do post-colonial criticism on uh, an a on Shakespeare, for example. Yes. Uh, and how would you do that? So I would say that there are two different, uh, I mean, many styles, but at least two different styles of yeah. post-colonial criticism. Um, the first one is, you know, you can look at canonical uh, texts of European literature, primarily from the colonizers. That was what Said himself did. Uh, and what you would do is to look, first of all, at representations, Orientalist representations of other places. Um, but you you could also then uh, uh, engage in revisionist readings of the European canon. Now, Shakespeare is a very good example because uh, Shakespeare wrote a play called The Tempest, yeah. uh, which has been used uh, uh, as, um, a, 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 as a paradigm for understanding the relationship between the colonizer and the colonized, the characters of Prospero, uh, Ariel, and Caliban. This um, is about a, a European prince who arrives on an apparently deserted island yes. but then has to deal with an indigenous person whom yes. he makes his servant yes well two uh two well uh, Sycorax was the mother of uh, uh Caliban yeah. Um, so he vanquishes. I, 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 my memory fails me. I'm not quite sure whether Sycorax is already dead or he vanquishes Sycorax and enslaves Caliban. But he also enslaves another um, another uh, spirit called Ariel. And the, the question is which of these... Uh, one spirit is rebellious, that is to say Caliban, mm. and the other spirit is Ariel. And these are then the polarities for the colonizer, the colonized to identify with, whether yeah. you're Caliban or Ariel. And in fact, you know, you have re-readings of the Tempest in uh, African, Caribbean, uh, uh, Latin American uh, uh, fiction. It's a very important topos. So th this is interesting because on Prosper Becomes Prosperous Island, then you've got two models. Yes. Um, you have the Caliban. Caliban tries to organize a rebellion against yes. Prospero, whereas Ariel is the, the obedience the, the colonial elite. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's yeah. the one who works with yeah. the, uh, the the new foreign government. Yes. Um, and this, I guess we should remember, is taking place at a time when the very earliest English colonizations in, in the Caribbean and North America, right? Yes, that's right. Sh mm. uh, the rise of sugar capital and mm. so on. Yeah. So, and of course, then, you know, you can also do, which also Edward Said did, uh, revisionist readings of, say, Jane Austen's Mansfield Park, where you look at the role of uh, 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 sugar capital. Um, and the role it plays in uh, 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 sustaining the estates of Sir Thomas Bertram, and so, so on. Okay, Would most of us think of a novel like Jane Austen's Mansfield Park as being simply about England, yes. about a, a, a rich family, a, a rich gentleman with his family estate in England. Yes. But the, the backdrop, or the mise-en-scene, so to speak, um, are these sugar plantations um, in Antigua, so halfway through the novel, Sir Thomas has to go off to these estates because there's some trouble or something, mismanagement. Mm. Um, or you can think about Jane Eyre um, mm. and Rochester's uh, first wife, who goes mad, Bertha Mason, who comes from, uh, from, uh, from the Caribbean. Good. So the post-colonial reading in, that, in those cases has to do with bringing out an aspect of the canonical text that itself is rather in, in the shadows in yes, the text itself. That the, 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 the text would try to uh, hide the fact, so to speak, or push it into the background. Okay. But the idea is to make this, to foreground this, to show the interdependence 
um, of the, the, the imperial center and the colony uh, so as to say, to look at the, how the, the imperial center is produced, how England is produced uh, by what goes on uh, in the colonies. Mm-hmm. So it's the colonies that then become what is most important, what has been uh, thrown into the shadows now uh, emerges. Uh, and this is a kind of uh, 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 so that's the first style. But if I can speak very very quickly, the second style uh, would be then to look at um, uh, uh, non-canonical texts, right? Texts that are being produced in other places, uh, you know, such as some of these Hong Kong uh, writings that uh, Stephen spoke of, um, and to look at uh, different forms of subversion, whether through hybridization and so on. Um, that happens in these uh, texts, and then these texts are not necessarily confined to the literary. It could okay. be art, could be cinema, yeah. and uh, and so on. Okay, we're we're getting towards the end of our time, but I, before we finish, I'm a bit worried about the post in postcolonial. It seems that it, in in a way, it's a is it not a rather backward looking way of considering culture that if you think of the of post-colonial culture as being shaped by something that happened in the past mm-hmm. as long as we talk about things mm-hmm. as post-colonial are we not somehow imprisoning them in that past paradigm isn't it difficult to get beyond can you be post post-colonial either of you <laughs> i think it depends on i mean how far reaching you see the legacy of colonialism as mm-hmm. um you know i mean uh, it's very difficult uh, for the past to vanish. Uh, what happened uh, when countries decolonized was that the first many countries changed the street names, mm. so all the colonial names disappeared. Mm. Uh, some countries kept them, uh, some places kept them. Hong Kong, for instance, Singapore, for instance, kept these names. In Malaysia, that was not the case. If you mm. go to Kuala Lumpur, you see all the streets, street names mm. being changed. Uh, so the question is, I mean, who wants to remember? Uh, what are the interests involved in remembering? And then sometimes one can't forget because, you know, the legacy uh, continues. So if uh, I may supplement, I, I would say one very important point that I, I learned from postcolonial theorists, in particular Edward Said, is that uh, uh, so-called postcolonial international has to speak, to speak truth to power. Speak truth, truth to power. And if we... Uh, continue to speak truth through power, I think we can, uh, uh, it's kind of forward-looking to imagine a better future. So I would lo- I would not say the post is a kind of uh, a limitation of our uh, looking forward to uh, to a better future. Okay, that's that's a very good and a resounding note on, on which to finish. My thanks to both of my guests, Stephen Chu and Peng Chair. Thanks a lot for coming, and thank you for listening.